Hello, this is Pablo Sabaleta. This is Troy Dini. This is Kevin Phillips. This is Jürgen Klopp and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travelled to all these interviews from Barcelona and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast would not happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to become a socio, to become one of our members and get an extra big interview every month, plus loads of bonus content. So go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Graham Hunter, and we'll bring you joy. From Backpage, I'm Martin Gregg, and this is a special edition of the big interview in which we preview this Saturday's Copa del Rey final between Barcelona and Valencia. Joining me from Barcelona is Graham Hunter. Graham, um, let's start by talking a little bit about Valencia. This has been a really, really interesting season. Um, they're coming into this game with a fair bit of momentum. I think they won the last three or four games of the season, secured Champions League football. Um, in the Copa del Rey final, got to the Europa League semi-final. Um, do you do you think they're taking a fair bit of momentum into this game? Yeah, I suppose they uh, they, they they take some momentum. I, it's not the first word I would reach for because when I looked at the two games, you know that they played against Arsenal, they were patently tired. You've got it exactly right that the the way in which they sneaked through into fourth place, having been in fourth, I think maybe once right in the first two weeks of the season, and then for, I don't know, the last 40 minutes of the penultimate game, and they held on to that with a good win at Valladolid last week in the 38th match. It kind of means that um, there must be a boost of adrenaline, there must be a boost of confidence you know, against Arsenal, they were they were that typical team that wanted to but couldn't. You know, they were reaching for a gear change from third to fourth, couldn't find it. Energy was part of the problem. They didn't defend particularly well. I think they conceded seven goals across the two legs. Barcelona are a complete different animal from that Arsenal, and even though Arsenal's season has been patchy, the the brutal energy that they had from the fullbacks, wingbacks, call it what you will, and the two strikers. It's something that Valencia don't face this weekend um, from Football Club Barcelona. So if I was to reach for an adjective, then I think it would might, it might be hunger, Martin, that they bring into this weekend because they're in their centenary year. If you're looking for little the little motivational sparks that might narrow the gap between a squad of slightly less quality than Football Club Barcelona's and the La Liga champions who are going to be missing. Ter Stegen wouldn't have played, but he won't even be on the bench. Coutinho's a risk. Uh, Dembele is out. Luis Suarez is out. They are patently tired. If you look at the Liverpool defeat and if you look at the the couple of games afterwards, the the draw against Eibar and the, and the fairly sort of ambulatory 2-0 win at home to Getafe, this is not a squad that's going to blow you away. Um, with intensity and, and power plays. So when, when I talk about the centenary season for Valencia, there's been a, a bubbling up of, of need 
you know, we have to win this. And the thing that strikes me that, that might be the might be the factor that des describes Los Che as they go into uh, Saturday's game in the Benito Villa Marine down in Sevilla, the Davinieri Stadium, is that it's they've, they've won in 40 years. They won in 1979, and in the 40 years subsequently, I think they've won maybe th twice. Um, certainly in 99, again in 2008, in a season that was just a ridiculous season. 99 was, was when they were at their peak. I was at that game. Again down in Sevilla, although in the Olympic Stadium where Celtic beat, uh, played Porto. It, it's, a, it's a city, and I include Levante in that, it's a city that's brutally hungry to knock over the big guns. So I think they go into this, I take your point about momentum, and it's it would definitely be in the mix because of the, the league games. But I, th I think they're driven by a hunger. That That's what I'm looking to watch on the pitch. I always love it when a team, there's calls for, for a manager to be sacked and then they don't sack them and then things turn around. And it feels like a lovely kind of antidote to this short-termism that, that grips modern football. Um, and I think maybe we've seen something like that at Valencia this season because at December, in December things were looking pretty bleak. Um, you know, the fans were, were, were calling for Marcelino's head and then a strange kind of sequence of events happens. Can, can you kind of talk us through it? Because, you know, personally, he, he, he's involved in a, in a car crash, isn't he? Uh, around about Christmas time, and then from then, for fortunes start to turn back in in, in his and in, in Valencia's favour. You're right, and listen, let's let's listen to what Marcelino himself says about the Jekyll and Hyde nature of part one of the season and part two of the season. We had loads of problems when we reached the opposition goal. If I recall correctly, we scored 17 times in the first 19 matches. It's the first occasion in my entire professional career this has happened to me. It wasn't the players' attitudes. There are situations, sequences in football, which simply don't have an explanation. That was the case with us. There was absolutely no logical way to explain that we reached the halfway mark in La Liga as the team which was the second least effective in terms of scoring goals. My players were attacking, they were creating glaring chances, but we either hit the post or the keeper was brilliant, or for one reason or another, we were simply incapable of converting anything like a reasonable proportion of our clear goal opportunities. When that happens, it naturally generates uncertainty. It corrodes confidence. We drew and drew. If you look at the numbers, they define the case. First half of the season, 17 scored, 17 conceded, 23 points. We won four times, drew 11 and lost only four. Then, with pretty much the same squad after Christmas, three guys came in, two left, but the three guys didn't have a lot of minutes. We scored 34 goals, I think 18 against. But those extra 17 goals were a complete transformation. 11 wins, five draws, three defeats. It was as simple as that. But why? Well, in the opening part of the season, frankly, the situation made me feel impotent. If you see that your team's not competitive, that they don't make chances, that they're too open or too vulnerable, 
the solutions for a coach are obvious. But when that's not happening, and you're still not scoring or winning, you genuinely ask yourself, damn it, what the hell is happening that we're repeatedly not able to turn draws into wins, not able to put our chances away? And there you heard, although it was my voice translating him, there you heard, back up to your point, that, you know, Valencia finished last season as kind of everybody's um, pet project. Aren't Valencia exciting? Look at the way that Pareco's playing, that he's been reinstated as captain and he's playing at the peak of his powers. Look at the, the brilliance of signing Neto from Juventus. He's been one of La Liga's top goalkeepers. And I think people looked at Rodrigo, for example, and, and just ahead of the World Cup as that season finished. I mean, there was, a, there was a, a severe interest in him from Real Madrid that he was going to be the Cristiano Ronaldo replacement instead of uh, Mariano from Lyon. They couldn't get him because Valencia said, oh, his buyout clause is 90 million. And therefore, coming into the season and, and starting looking... Um, Martin, what was the word? Sterile. I think sterile is the, is the word. They, they were doing... I suppose it was like Eric Morkham and, and Andre Previn. It was, you know, all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. They, they, they closed, they worked, they were hard to beat, they created goal chances and they didn't score. And, and, and when they, you know, were either hit by a sucker punch or somebody scored a good goal against them, too often they didn't have the means to turn um, a defeat into a draw or a draw into a victory. And therefore, they, they, st they got to the turn of the season, having scored, as, as the coach said there, fewer than a goal a game. And rather than, I mean, the, the, there, was, there was a time, you're right, uh, particularly the Sevilla game at home, when Sevilla weren't playing really hot stuff. They came, they were 1-0 up, it was into the 92nd or the 93rd minute. Diacabi got up, um, they, they won a free kick that should never have been. They, they lob it into the box from the right-hand side. And Diakabi heads home for 1-1. And yet, because um, there had been a visit that day from um, the owner, Peter Lim, and because the the club had, had decided that they'd put out one of these mosaics where you get pieces of plastic card, the backs of the plastic were all white. So, of course, all around the Mistea, they, they did this panelada that used to be done in bullfighting in, in Spain. And it was it would either... It's a strange gesture in that it can either signal extreme happiness or it can <laughs> signal extreme disgust and in this case there was no doubt about it at all because people don't carry hankies they were all using these pieces of card turned around to be white or pieces of newspaper or whatever they could get their hands on plastic white plastic bags sometimes and all around Mastaya there was a panelada that that white hanky protest about get out, this isn't good enough. Now, it was aimed, I think, at the owners, not at Marcelino. And I think Marcelino, despite, you could tell, Mastaya, as, as guys come in, Dieta always explains on Viva La Liga, it's, it's a brutal audience that will, if you're, if you're on song on, on the crest of the wave, they'll, they'll adore you. And if you're not, then they will barrack you. And, and the difference between night and day can be a space of, two or three weeks of not playing well. And in that game, the, there was a hostility. But, you know, to, to put flesh in the bones of what Marcelino was saying, he he, he drives home, he's a Sturian, um, which means, uh, I, I mean, he's actually from in and around Gijon. The other the two big towns up there are Gijon and Oviedo. And Marcelino's driving his wife and his mother home 
the long road um, Valencia to Asturias and there's a wild boar um, leaps out, it's dark wild boar leaps out into the, the middle of the road and in swerving to try and avoid it and I think he clips it, the, the bump leaves him and his wife okay but it leaves his, his relatively aged mother in, in bad condition, it's a terrible shock to all of them, she survives but it's it's you know, the impact is not simply the impact of the, the car hitting the side of the road. And and whether that slightly changed his, made him a slightly Ivan Golak, you know, I stopped to smell the roses and I stopped to smell the coffee. I don't quite know. But in the month of January, even though there was a defeat in the cup and even though um, there was a defeat in the league, I think to Alaves, Things clicked. They fought back in the cup. They won late. I think it was against Valladolid. Um, late in the game at home to Valladolid. And and suddenly late goals came, Martin. That was the big thing. And little by little, because in January, it wasn't suddenly release the hounds. Everything's fine. It was a, an incremental growth, such that by the end of the season, that goal total was was doubled for the same amount of games. The the goals conceded was maintained and they, they knocked over Real Madrid. They um, ate away at Getafe's lead. I think they were at one point when there was no margin for error, 10 or 12 points down. I don't think any team in the history of La Liga has left it so late to, to cut down such a big margin and finish in the Champions League position on on the last day of the season. So there was a huge Jekyll and Hyde difference between part one of the season and part two of the season. And and as Marcelino explains, had he been seeing that his team was incapable of playing football similar to last season, incapable of creating chances, he would have understood that new remedies were needed. And he'd never, ever seen in his life a team doing pretty much all the right things, but having no product, missed chances, the ball bouncing back off a defender, the ball bouncing back off the crossbar or the post. Um, a, 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 a sort of minutia of tiny details like a last pass, which is a quarter of a yard too fast. And, and that happened again and again and again, but gradually they erased it. And the key thing to go back to answer your point is that the players never deserted him the players to a man and that's really this is a guy who starves his players and and weighs them three times a day and bans them from bans them from eating and they admit that they have to learn to play hungry when you're also asking them to run their butts off and to press and to be in a physically hard-working sort of uh, mean machine 442 where it's obligatory that, for example, the fullbacks must bomb up and down, then you can lose a squad. You can lose a squad out of them being pissed off with your, your dietary regime, pissed, tired, just physically or even emotionally tired. And they didn't, they, they weren't. And and when, you know, there was, a, on the, I think the 12th of January, Marcelino was commanded to go over to, where does Peter Lim live? I, I think it's Singapore. And... Anil Murthy, who's the delegated sort of MD by Peter Lim, the owner who is part owner with Salford City, who just got promoted into the Football League and the ownership of 
Neville Brothers and gigs in schools and, and Beckham and Butt. And, and Peter Lim listened to him over there, listened to Marcelino, um, had taken soundings from the players and said, um, go back and do your job. So as your, your point is that on the, on the 12th of January, it, it, it was absolutely the case that a great part of the media in Spain thought Marcelino's getting his jotters, and he didn't. And they're in the cup final, and they won money in the Europa League by going all the way to the semi-finals. And, and now they stand to win what would only be their third cup in 40 years. I do want to talk a bit more about Marcelino's character, but just, just to rewind a little bit there, you were talking about the goals tally doubling from uh, part part one to part two of the season. Uh, lots of little kind of incremental differences by the sound of it, but I mean that, that that's astonishing in itself that they suddenly they suddenly find their way to goal in such a dramatic way. I mean, can you kind of break that down a little bit more for us? It's hard. There are two or three things. Getting rid of Batch Y was was absolutely fundamental. I. I I mean, I'm, I hope he's, a, he's a, a lovely guy, but my words have to be critical. I watched him round the team hotel a few times when I was down there for Champions League matches in the first half of the season. He was watching some sort of Japanese, Japanese animated kids cartoon on his iPad with headphones on, wandering around the hotel. And the other players were kind of sniggering at him behind his back. I'm nothing if not a bit idiosyncratic. And people do much worse than snigger behind my back. So I'm not hanging Batshuayi out to drive for that. But given that he was playing like a dud as well on the pitch, and he almost, he always seemed to have his feet always seemed to be bigger than he thought they were, and it was horrible to watch. And I just didn't think he was adequate. And he put he put Santimina and he put Kevin Gamero on the bench, and it didn't work for him and Rodrigo. And therefore, to, to me, he was a he was a fly in the ointment. Football clubs are, are well within the rights to try players like that, and to to take loan deals and say how do we how do we find a different type of player so that teams who've got used to how we play can less well predict what we're going to be like? So fair enough, you roll the dice, but the dice fell off the table and one went under the couch and one went under the freezer and nobody could find it. And, and back to why it was a bum deal. And, and therefore, you look at Rodrigo not scoring and, and some of that was his own problem. And I can't explain the, the way in which... Norm, it wasn't just confidence draining... He thought he, he was doing everything right. And I saw the despair in his face when when he literally would try everything. He would miss hit it. He would hit it perfectly. He would time it. He would go, he would accelerate his run or he would hold back his run. He'd drop away from the crosser so that it had to be a diagonal cutback or he'd go front post and nothing was working. So that's why in the way, Rodrigo being absolutely... Um, um, he, he was he was at a loss for what to do next. Gamero and Mina weren't playing quite regular enough, and there was a match against the Swiss side in um, in um, I think it's Young Boys. I haven't, I haven't done my research, but I was there, so I should know. I'm pretty sure it was Young Boys, and um, the 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 Swiss counter Mastaya and Santi Mina teamed up with uh, Rodrigo, and suddenly you're like, yeah. That's the one. That partnership works. They're working for each other. And then gradually Gamero got form and did what, you know, he's, he's a sort of French Carlos Baca. You bring him on and he buzzes around. And even though he's pint size, he's still brutally nippy. And he's just, he's a goal scorer. He, again, he's in the, the some Ben Yedder mould. Maybe does a little bit less work back than Ben Yedder does. And gradually, without any of them being prolific, gradually there was...
a, a dribble and then a stream of goals from each of the three of them. And Parejo. Parejo had started the season behaving like a, a, a ninny goat. Almost getting sent off, then getting sent off, giving away penalties, missing a penalty against Juventus. He seemed to have a stone in his shoe. And I'm talking particularly the away game to Villarreal, the home game to Juventus. And there was another at Mastaya where I damned if I can remember the opponent. And if you contrast that to the Parejo from about November to, to May, where he's played his best football and he's led, it's been, it's, it's been you know, it's filthy. How, how well he plays, his passing, his first touch, the body shape when he receives the ball, how he sees play around him, how how fearless he is for offering for the ball. So again, that made a, a huge difference. And they, they've had injuries to cope with, but for a short spell, Cherishev was bombing on. Geddes had a, yeah, he had a bad hernia. And they, and they muddled around for a few months and then decided in, in sort of early winter, I've got to operate in this. Something that was screamingly obvious. They did operate it. And when he got back, gradually he found his form and his pace and he wasn't injured. I don't think there's marvellous feeling between Geddes and, and Marcelino. But between Marcelino and the rest of the squad, there's a there's a really solid bond, and they worked for him, and they worked for each other, and that's that's why I agree with you. I think you were talking policy wise. You like to see clubs not being sort of um, paper in the wind if somebody's shouting at them. Get out of that manager. You, you don't want to see. You want to see clubs having a policy and an idea and character, and the bollocks to say no, fuck off, you're wrong, and and th that happened, but the other or the the dovetailing part of it was that the squad and the manager and the technical staff, I, I've, it's a while since I've seen something so unified and so determined, we will not be defeated. And, and here they are. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, it's interesting. I think you can only probably bring about a turnaround in fortunes like that. I mean, I think a lot of things go into it, but I think if the if the squad and the, the management are unified and, and Martellino's obviously taking these these players with him uh, and they've stuck with him, they, they've had faith in him throughout this, this you know, the, the difficult part one of the season. But I mean, what, what have you seen that's kind of different in his character? Because I read some stuff about him leaving Villarreal and I think uh, he's obviously a guy that works at an incredible level of intensity, which can burn out not just players, but, you know, the board and everyone around him. But he see, has he found a way of connecting with players uh, in this era of his career at Valencia that, that uh, maybe brings, him, brings the players with him more than it did in the past? I think that's very feasible. I think that, you know, if, for those who are listening to the big interview and, and don't remember, when Marcelino takes over at Villarreal, they've started the season in the Champions League. They get pumped. They're not right. The squad building isn't right. They look paper thin. I remember one game I was at where Bayern Munich went to Madrigal in a place where Madrigal had been really, really hard for teams to get anything out of, never mind win. And I think Bayern put three or four past them. That was at the beginning of the season. By the end of the season, they're relegated. And when Marcelino takes over, he takes them, he marches them straight up again and into the Primera. And they do well. You know, they're finishing high up the table. I think they're fighting for a European place. And the last game of the season is one where VRL have to go to uh, Sporting Gijón and Gijón under Avalado need to win in order to stay up. And it probably sends, I'd guess, Rayo Vallecano down. And there's no way to, to gild the lily. We have to say, given that Marcelino is a Sporting Gijón supporter, and given that he didn't, he he just switched off his training intensity in the week leading up to the game, sent a team out that looked all right on paper as the eleven, played without any intensity because he'd sort of said, lads, you know, you've had a good season, summer holidays start now, a week early. Sporting win. Um, there's no question that the game is, is thrown, but VRL don't go there with the same intensity as you would have imagined if they were playing for a Champions League place or if it was a cup semi-final, they just don't. And Marcelino's wife makes an injudicious comment on social media. And what happens is that during the summer, this simmers. It simmers with the president, Reutsch, at Villarreal. It simmers with the players. And by that, by the end of that season, the captains have fallen out with Marcelino pretty intensely. And there is a point, and I would name one of them, Fazio, the, the Argentinian defender who subsequently left the club. There's a captaincy team of three main ones and one one more junior one. And they go and they say to the president, well, it's it's the coach or it's us. We'll be asking to leave the club if you don't get rid of him. And Reutsch does get rid of Marcelino. And it's, you know, in the build-up, the season's probably 10 days away. And he sacked 
And it, and it's and there is an exchange of words. And I don't think there's any question whatsoever that in his time out of the game, which was relatively brief, um, until Matteo Alemani uh, takes over at Valencia and says to Kiki Setien, who's about to be appointed, which is not last summer, but the summer before, sorry, Kike, everything's changed at the last minute. You're not getting the job. Marcelino is. And by the time Marcelino comes in, he, I think you're right. I think you've pinpointed something that the experience of there being, he, he undoubtedly um, uses his intensity, um, whether it's in training drills or whether it's phone calls to a player about, remember you're playing against Jordi Alba in, in three weeks' time. Start thinking about it now, that that happens. <laughs> yeah. Being weighed three times a day. Just the intensity of his regime, although he doesn't play football, doesn't have a footballing concept, anything like Guardiola. It's Guardiola-esque. And I think that, you know, we use that as as a, a yardstick for ultra, ultra intensity and the possibility of burning lesser players, lesser characters out. And I think that when he, he uses all these things for the good of the club, not because he's a martinet, not because he's a sergeant major or, or takes a sort of perverse pleasure out of, you know, there are managers who take pleasure out of poking players in the ribs, verbally or physically. You you're not good or you're not giving enough or I want more from you or you won't play in it. We've both seen it we, and listeners will know this. That's not what Marcelino's doing. He absolutely believed that this, this sort of hellish, foundry-hot intensity that he brings to every minute of every day and that he accepts he takes home with him, that he's obsessive, that he can't switch off. These things, he was shocked to find the degree to which that senior players in the VRL squad had turned against him and it mellowed him. He he just took a he took a pace back and reassessed how can I achieve the same results? How can I keep the same objectives but just temper my manner a little bit? And I think you're right. I think that, that has happened. You know, the leopard doesn't change the spots completely. Um it would be it would be a hard regime. Think of your worst ever geography teacher and when you used to get the belt, you know, for misbehaving. Um, it'd be a little bit like that, but maybe maybe the start comes out a little bit less on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, it's mad to, to read about all the stuff that he does in terms of, you know, he's got a fit, fitness coach that obsessively weighs, it, weighs the players every day. And um, it sounds like almost like a bit of a monastic regime at times, you know, in the way these players have to live their life. But it's interesting when you read the, the comments from players, like, you know, there's obviously um, a kind of realisation of the incredible demands that are put upon them. But there's also a, a realisation that he makes them better. He, you know, he, he, he brings success. So there's this kind of, it's an incredible tension that exists, but it sounds like he's falling on the right side of it now, whereas in the past it would just, it would just be too much for, for certain people. I think that's right. And I think that the, if, we're, if we're, you know, colouring um, inside the lines here and trying to make a proper picture, you know that the intensity is married to the fact that he's a very, very good coach. He's he's very clear about the reason for his training regimes, and he does claim that all the physical side, the fitness side, the dietary side, that that um, pertains to the team or his his technical team around him. He says, "Look, I, I'm the manager, therefore I I set the objectives, I I steer the ship, and I'm the coach, therefore." These are the drills I want on a daily basis. But the intensity of his regime is to is to promote the idea that he's got a, a 
crystal clear playing philosophy. It, it might sometimes be too strict. Let me give you an example. He's played 3-5-2 maybe twice in the last two years. Once at Arsenal in the way leg of the Europa League semi-final. And it was utterly disastrous. The players had no idea what to do. Once, um, my feeling is that it was up at Abar or Alaves. Um, because he's wedded to 4-4-2. But the beauty of it is that he understands absolutely intrinsically how that must function positionally where the two centre midfielders should be, how often and with what degree of balance or support the full-back should push up, which of the strikers is the nine, which of the striker must drop in behind and help service Parejo. The, the, if you, albeit that they got beaten against Arsenal, anybody who wants to go back um, to the second leg, first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes. There's a point where Arsenal attack down the right, and I think it's, is it um, Maitland-Niles, who's the um, right back? And and he decides to go on a charge. And, you know, he'll be one of the key players. He, he'll have his night, no doubt. But he goes on a charge down the right. He gets shepherded into a position where his ball into the middle is nothing, and Neto picks it up. And Neto releases, and the way in which it's Cobra-like, the way in which Valencia don't even need to, to look a second time. They know the right back is out of position. The ball from Neto to the to the middle, whoever drops back, and it, it might well have been Coquelin, they drop back, it's fed to um, Geddes immediately, and Geddes is off down the left, and there's a cutback and a ball in, and the ball goes to, I'm pretty sure it was uh, Kevin Gamero who scores for the 1-0 goal. But if, if you look at the move from the second the ball reaches Neto's hands in goals and the way in which it's like one, two, three, four, five, goal, right down the path. And that I use that as an emblem of the... Uh, in Spanish, it's called automatismos. The automatic things that he's taught Valencia to do so brilliantly. And I think that, you know, he is a coach who in due course will, will work in... Um, the Premier League, he's learning English, and we'll work in the Premier League simply because you know there's far bigger wages there. I think that he's an ambitious man, and I think that when he gets the right club and squad, he'll do something similar. And and in my opinion, Marcelino will be a, you know, will be a top four finisher in the Premier League at some stage in the in the coming three, six, eight years because he's got the ability to make a team brutally hard to play against. Anyway, the, the long and short is that because Valencia's debt is still 500 million and because they've got they've had to be really clever about how they put this squad together, loans, cheap purchases, uh, loans that they turn into buys after a year like Geddish did, like Condopia did. This is not the absolute best squad that a club like Valencia could command. But he's he's taken the elements brilliantly. I made them into a side which can which can win this cup final, which can I, I'm not I'm not stating as a matter of fact that they start as favourites, given that Barcelona have won the last four. But I think that 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 a combination of a little of a hint of the momentum you talked about, the, the hunger that I'm talking about, the way in which they've got the majority of their players fit. Kondogbia might be available for the bench. Cherishev won't make it, but the majority of the rest of the players are not only fit, but in good nick now. Um, Arsenal showed that if you really 
You know, if they if you play at them like Liverpool played at Barcelona, then you can go past them a little bit. But Barcelona won't do that, can't do that, haven't got the capacity to do that. So they they go down to Sevilla to the Benito Villa Marine where, where Scotland played Brazil in nineteen eighty two and it's home to Real Betis. And it's cruel, Martin. I I just need to make this point. I know you watched the the amazing, amazing scenes when Valencia put Betis out of the cup semi final, having drawn t- they were two 0 down after 70 minutes of the first leg of the semi-final to Betis. And Betis were playing for that most beautiful of, of nirvanas where you you host the cup final in your own stadium and, you, you know, you're playing. <laughs> and Betis were, I don't know, 90 plus 20. is They were 110 good minutes away from getting there. And Valencia beat them um, in the 1-0 in, in Mestalla for a 3-2 victory. And, you know, it's it's... Since that night, that's when the momentum came, I think. That, that you know, you've seen the, the extraordinary Avenida Suecia, along where, where uh, Manolo del Bombo, Manolo, the, the Spanish drummer, his bar is there looking straight into the main gates of the Valencia. And Avenida Suecia, Swedish Avenue, is, is the street that runs along the side of the remodeled Mestalla. And that night, flipping heck. The fans were there. The players were shouting down to them from the balcony. They were all singing together. It was, it was something truly beautiful. And I think that's where the momentum comes from. I, I do want to finish off by talking a little bit more about Barcelona. I mean, post Liverpool, it was such a devastating aggregate loss, and they obviously had a couple of league games after that. I think they beat Hitafe and drew with Ibar in the final game of the season. Um, I'd be interested to know where they're at at the moment. I mean, they've obviously got plenty to, to play for. I think this would be their fifth Copa win in a row, domestic double. Um, where, where do you assess um, they're at at the moment after that kind of devastating uh, reverse to, to Liverpool earlier this month? Yeah, the, the, the external and, and some of the club... Um, debate is all about, you know, they've got a kind of football eczema. They're 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 itching all over and they're scratching their skin raw. Um, Chavi from afar is saying, um, Barcelona won the champ won't win the Champions League again until they learn to dominate the play and take control of the play and, and keep the ball and be able to cope with teams like Liverpool or Paris Saint Germain or Juventus or Roma, not by matching them physically because that's what it's looked like to the to those who don't know the Barca philosophy. It's looked like physically Barcelona aren't at the level of, the, you know, the 3-0 the, the Juventus or the, uh, what was it, 3 or 4-0 Paris Saint-Germain, I can't remember, I think 4, the pumping at Anfield. They're undoubtedly damaged by the fact that there's no Dembele and there's no Luis Suarez. Suarez's knee operation, Dembele pulled a muscle and won't be ready in time. Coutinho, for whatever that's worth, probably going to be ready at least on the bench maybe a start and I think that they will be it will feel a little bit patched up and it will feel a little bit vulnerable to to Barcelona fans and you come right smack down to Piquet um, Rakitic Messi I think in that Sergio Busquets is, is having an odd season. On the ball, in close situations, fine. When he's run past, when he's robbed, he, he doesn't look quite able. 
anymore physically, and that the the motor is diminished, and therefore the fact that he's probably I say probably going to play against Coquelin and Parejo means that he's not going to have central midfielders sprinting past him, but on either side he's probably going to have Geddes and um, either Soler or Ferran um, streaming up and down. He's probably going to have um, Gaia streaming up and down over not superior in midfield for Valencia, I think. And and therefore, I look at PK Rakitic and Messi and say that if you're asking for an assessment of where they are, they will feel exactly the same about this cup final as if they'd won none of the last 10 instead of the last four. They'll feel exactly the same about this final, whether they'd gone to Anfield and won 4-0 or beaten 4-0. You know, the, these guys are different gravy, as good as they are. They're flinty tough. PK didn't look right at Abar. Um, in that he's had a brilliant season, one of the seasons of his career. And there were a couple of errors, as determined as ever, but th there did look as if his attention had dropped because the Abar game mattered really not a jot. Do I expect him to play like that on, on Saturday? No, I expect him to be towering. And I expect Valencia, for however quick they are, however well Parejo uses the ball, um, for however vertical and rapid their transitions of the ball, are I expect them to have to wrestle the cup out of the hands of Rakitic, Messi and PK, And that's where the value lies. I think it could be a tense game. I'd be a little surprised if it's a sort of five-goal thriller. Um, I, I, I think that, you know, that once a team gets a purchase on the final, they may try to close up. But the, the, the fascination will be, can these big beasts who've won the last four, who've, who've, who are looking for a second double in the trot, um, hold off the up-and-comer, because that's what Valencia looked like to me. And I, and they might just, a man for man, they won't be hungrier than, than Piquet, Rakitic or Messi, but man for man, I think Valencia might have the hungrier squad. And therefore it's going to be, I think it's a, a don't miss match. Okay, that's our show, folks. Check out. Whoa, 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 folks. It's not. There's no way you're getting out of this without your own verdict and your own prediction. Don't don't even don't even start to think that. Um, do you know it's a it's an interesting one. I agree with you. I don't think it's going to be a high-scoring match. I think it will be tight. Um, part of me would love to see Valencia get a result, but I don't know. I think these big games come down to mentality and. It's a lot of the time, and it's hard to see a, a team with the kind of sheer experience and relentlessness that Barca have not winning this trophy for a fifth time. So I would I would take Barca by the odd goal. There you go. You see, I, I asked because I wanted to know, and so did the listeners. And listeners, before Martin signs off, because he's very good at that, thank you for making a silver medalist in the British uh, Podcast Awards last weekend. Even though not all of you were judges... We owe it to you. Thanks again, folks. That's our show. Check out the game on Saturday night. I think we'll be back early next week to reflect on the match. Thanks for listening and thanks, as always, to Graham Hunter. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.